0: This is the Low Tox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming
1: of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork
0: light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 184, and I have a wonderful show for you with naturopath and friend Gabriella Rosa, who is an uh, absolute ninja when it comes to fertility. This show is called Fertility for the Win Even When It's Hard, and Gabriella specializes in the cases where they've been told, I just don't think you're going to be able to naturally conceive or I don't think IVF is going to work, she gets the people who've tried so-called everything. And so uh, it's an absolute pleasure to bring her work to you today because I have a feeling it's going to help a few people out there and completely change your life as she's been able to for many, many people. Uh, So I'm going to hook into that show in a little second, uh, but I wanted to uh, have a chat about a couple of things before we did. So I just wanted to share with you guys that my family has made the decision to temporarily move down to Barrel for a month or two while uh, we ride out uh, the COVID-19 ISO phase. Uh, Even with the relaxation of things, it... um, It was quite financially stressful during this downturn for my husband's business, for one of my businesses. Some of you guys don't know, but I have a hospitality consultancy, as well as this wonderful uh, low-tox life community that I get to show up and serve every day. And of course, hospitality isn't happening at the moment, uh, and certainly not consultancy and training and mystery shopping, which is what my boutique business specialised in. So... Uh, I We asked ourselves, what is the empowered choice we can make here? How can we uh, not hope and wish that it was different but actually take control and remove some of that financial pressure? And in our 40s, we decided that moving in with my parents temporarily was the best way forward while we regroup, assess and uh, and just not have that financial burden on top of my head. Why am I telling you this? Um, I'm telling you this because sometimes we feel like it's all happening to us and we have no options, but I'm going to challenge that because having been through a few tricky times, certainly with mold illness, Uh, And maybe it's because that happened to me so recently, three years ago, that I feel more malleable in my thinking and more um, of a sense of possibility and trust that everything's going to work out, which allows me to relax enough to be creative in my thinking. Because, of course, when we're stressed and really high strung about stuff and worried and, of course, hello, when we're trying to homeschool, run businesses, do all the housework and all the things we're all trying to manage right now. Um, it's hardly a time for expansive creative thinking uh, when everything feels like it's being thrown at you um, along with the kitchen sink. So um, for me... I wanted to see what the um, all the options were and we brainstormed what all the options were. Do we move down to a two-bedroom apartment and just squeezy squeezy ourselves for a little bit in a smaller place? Um, you know and that could be a really viable option for people as well. There are so many things that are options if you allow them to be and um, and they can help you feel empowered in an otherwise powerless feeling situation. Uh, and I learnt this particular trick from Seth Godden, which is map out what your worst case scenario is. And the worst case scenario ended up m- being moving in with my parents, not because it's terrible, but because that would be like the the option that would like, would that worst case scenario really be that bad is what you're trying to ask yourself. Um, and often when you're thinking of taking a risk and you really look at what that worst case scenario might be, and you sit with it for a bit, you think, hold on, if that's the worst case scenario, then that's actually a really good scenario. And then you might even start to warm up to the idea of that being a possibility. And so it was for us and it became for us, and it was very nerve wracking handing in notice in, on our rental in Sydney, um, uh, but once I pressed send and once it was just going to be the thing that we were doing, it felt completely right. And so, um, here we are in the country at my parents' place and, you know, uh, so many silver linings have come from that now that we're here. Um, one Right now we don't have to worry about money. We provide the food in the household. I do the big veggie shop. We're contributing in a ton of ways, cooking dinner, you know, sharing the load of housework, um... You know, But two, we have um, a yard that Seb can run around in and, and be a 10-year-old boy running off all his energy. Um, three, some of the things we really like to do, like I really like getting a tune-up at the chiropractor um, and I really needed one yesterday and um, having tennis lessons. That's all much cheaper in the country, so that's been a huge win. Uh, and, um, and then really the major win, and it was listening to one of um, – Governor Cuomo's addresses, New York being the epicentre of this virus at the moment, and I can understand that some people are frustrated by shelter in place. If they feel like they're not somewhere where they're, you know, directly affected, I understand that frustration. I think it would be remiss of us to not have compassion for people who are frustrated right now. We're probably frustrated by quite a few things ourselves, and got to have a lot of compassion and kindness right now it can't be I'm against this person that person because they're because they're in a different situation to us and we don't know what that feels like and if you were running the state of New York right now you would be (laughs) you would be so insistent on shelter in place because it is literally saving thousands of lives a day for people to be doing that right now. And I, I, that's got nothing to do with what I picked up on in this particular conference that he gave. But he was talking about connection and the silver lining of having his adult children at home right now and realising that the conversations they're having are much deeper, more intimate conversations than they've had for years where, you know, the kids come home, it's Christmas, da da. da you kind of just get on with the celebration and all of the aspects of the celebration, but you don't talk about how work is in a really deep level, fears, hopes, dreams. You know, a lot of that stuff gets skimmed over uh, once you're an adult child and um, I'm definitely an adult child at 44. Uh, but, you know, having deeper conversations, getting past the, how's everything, what's happening da, 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 and actually talking life and, Um, When you've got school-age kids and they're running around with a billion different activities and you're literally moving from one thing to the next quite often um, throughout your week, it becomes a bit fewer and further between between that you can go visit your parents. I I have the great fortune of getting along with my parents really well, and I fully recognize that this is, you know, the idea of moving in with one's parents for people who don't have a relationship with their parents, maybe estranged, maybe really toxic – that that would obviously be a worst-case scenario that wouldn't work for you. So it's more of figuring out what this all looks like for you if you're in a situation where you need to rethink stuff for a little bit. I just wanted to be really open about what was going through my head uh, because I think it cultivates a low-tox mind to be more open, to be more vulnerable, to talk more, to uh, relate more, to understand that different people are going through different things. Uh, that's all part of the show, you know. If I can't do it, then how can I expect all of you guys out there to cultivate a low-tox mind and um, and think creatively, think differently, find peace with difficult decisions? You know, this is all muscles that we need to work, so I'm showing you that I'm working mine. And having a, a busy 10-year-old dude who loves his tennis comp, tennis clinic on the weekends We don't come down here as much. We make sure we do birthdays, Christmas, Easter weekend, those kinds of things, and maybe one weekend a term. But um, that's not a huge amount. And so to have this gift of time to go deep, to be, um, to even get frustrated with each other a little bit because you are spending that much time together, um, and to realise some of your own uh, things that you need to work on because I think the first thing you've got to think when you're frustrated with someone else is what is this showing up for me that I am invited to work on right now? You know, that is not something we often, uh, we often skim over that part. We just stay it being about the other person. And certainly um, the trend in leadership uh, shows us as many leaders these days try and deflect and push everything onto others as leaders who own everything and take full responsibility and, uh, and that's a much more difficult position, right, and I like to try and follow those guys because I think it makes us better humans. So um, so it's been a really interesting time. We're a week in now, just a little over as today goes live and, uh, and I think it's just such a gift So this is us playing out um, a tricky situation and finding the most peaceful, fruitful, prosperous, empowered way to do that. Uh, and, um, And I guess, you know, that's one of the beauties of... Uh, choosing to rent um, is that, you know, you have that thing that you can pick up and go, but maybe you could rent your place out. I know it's a bit tricky to find tenants at the moment, but who knows? Um, Maybe you don't even need to move. Like it's it's more about just sharing that this time is not linear. We cannot plan this out. We cannot know when it's going to end. We cannot know we can have some great estimates, we can have some great discussions, look at the research, but really we're all just in this and however it's showing up for us is inviting us to find a way to be in it the best way possible and that is going to look different for me, for you, for the next guy. So I just wanted to share a little bit about what we had been through and what we were working on. Um, and how we've managed to turn this around because now that I don't have huge amounts of financial pressure other than saving up for my school fees and saving up for um, a good month's or two's rent so that when we do move back to Sydney we're ready to go and sign contracts with um, a great little place, um, I don't have all the other pressures. Um, And what that has meant is I can be a lot more relaxed And that allows you to think more creatively. It allows you to rest better. So anything you can do to relax. You know, the first thing I did when lockdown was announced was I thought about everything that costs something that we absolutely do not critically need right now and stopping it. And kept one thing that brought us a huge amount of joy, which was tennis lessons. And every other don't have to really do that right now, could live without for two months right now, uh, went away. So, you know, it's all about reducing financial stress because that can play on your whole physiology and mental state in a way that we often don't articulate well enough and therefore don't recognise it as a huge priority to address because especially if you've grown up in Anglo-Saxon cultures, Um, And I'm not too sure about how money conversations play out in all cultures, of course. I only um, really truly am an expert of my own. Uh, it's such a taboo thing, you know, it's so, we don't have great financial education growing up through our school systems. It's quite taboo to talk about what you earn with friends, how you set yourself up. I remember starting to meet friends who were setting themselves up and I got my financial education from them as a full grown adult and started to turn my own financial situation around thanks to incredible friend mentors. So, um, I think if we talk about it more, we get better at it. And this is me being on the front foot and not going into debt in this period rather than – and and also, you know, being able to be creative and nurture um, Lotox Life, the community, provide you the stack of resources we've been creating since COVID-19 came about – um, and, uh, you know, Brenda and I are about to launch Thrive for the year in a couple of weeks. It would be very hard to get excited like we normally get excited about things like that if I was massively stressed um, and and really, really worried right now. Um, and uh, being in the country as well as someone with um, recovering from SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, Um, I feel a lot less health pressure as well knowing that there haven't been any new cases down here for the last um, week or so Um, because in Sydney, living in the Wallara Council area, that was one of the clusters and it was right next to Waverley Council area, which was the chief cluster in Sydney. So um, taking that I might get this and this might really, um, really affect me uh, some of you might know that I talked about being not sure if I did get it or if it was a mould um, storm, a cytokine storm that I had about a month and a half ago now. Um, but if I, let's just say that wasn't COVID and I did get it, I would be worried because, you know, mould illness really does take your immune system down a peg, it dysregulates things, your are um, your cytokines don't fire properly. <laughs> your interleukin-6 is implied in both uh, mold and COVID-19. And uh, and I was worried about that. I was so, I had to become a huge germphobe and I've never been a germphobe. So a number of things have meant that this has had a stack of silver linings and have been able to relax and create for you guys. So I just wanted to share that today because um, I recognise that this is a super tough time. I didn't even talk about parenting and homeschooling during this time and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's um, a conversation for another time. Might make it part of the club chat this this um, this month. But um, but I just wanted to reach out and mentally, virtually hug anyone who's finding this a really disempowering time, and invite you to see how you can find empowerment in a time like this. Maybe this is a time for you to find your inner ninja. Uh, I think Marie Forleo's book, Everything is Figure outable would be a great read right now for anyone who's feeling a bit powerless. Uh, and it's impossible to feel shitty and trapped when you read that book. So go out and get it um, and uh, and look after yourself. You know, find a way for this to not be quite so terrible if it's terrible right now Um, because there are ways. We just have to work a little harder to find them when when everything feels like it's not going your way. Um, So one of the things that we have uh, launched is Lotox Club 2.0. I am so proud of this. Everyone's just received their May Lotox Club Clubbers Pack of um, little bits and pieces that we produce just for, for clubbers. And I wanted to do this as a way for people to uh, support the work that we do, to continue supporting the work that you're doing on leading a low-tox life. And it's a beautiful community. We originally ran it through Patreon, um, but the feedback was from a lot of you that um, you didn't like the uh, credit card charges because um, Patreon's an international company. It, It was charging you more than what you were paying per month. Um, even though it was a tiny um, amount. And I thought, how can we do this that actually just cleans this whole thing up? And I thought, let's just do an annual membership, super, super low cost, because I want everybody to benefit from this, not just a few people who can afford big membership fees, Um, especially when everything charges us a monthly fee these days. I just wanted a clean payment that can come out once a year and you're privy to a private chat group. And the beauty of a paywall around a private chat group is you don't get trollers, you don't get people who don't really get leading a low-tox life, who maybe haven't come across the community, read the book before, you know, no knowledge. So you get a really, really high-quality um, base of people there to answer questions for people who are maybe newer to things, as well as me being in there, of course, um, as well. You get a QA and a monthly with me. Um, we're introducing a few club chats with people who have some incredible smarts in the community and, uh, looking at how leading a low-tox life is playing out for them. Uh, you get 50% off all of our low-tox e-courses except for, um, my business coaching program and, uh, Thrive, which I run with Brenda. They're not... Um, purely low tox life courses. Uh, so, but everything else—that's eight other courses on inflammation, fertility. Everything you can you can get access to those for fifty percent off if you're a clubber. So, literally doing one course pays you back your month, your annual club membership. Which means the annual club membership is only 49 Australian dollars a year, a year, guys. So in US dollars, that's like $30. In euro, I think it's like 27, 28 euro pounds. It's like 25 to 27 pounds, depending on the day you check the exchange rate, but it is inexpensive. And so what it helps us do is it helps us know uh, because we have this fantastic clubber survey when you join all the things that are priorities for you and it helps us support you really, really clearly with the things that matter most to you as a community Um, and it helps you get a bit more access to me through the monthly Q&A and me being in there answering questions every now and then. Uh, And it gives you a free practitioner thread where you can pop a question to Steph and on her in-session day she has a look at all the questions that came through over the week and she answers them. A whole bunch of good stuff. So all you have to do to join the club is go to lowtoxlife.com forward slash the hyphen low hyphen tox hyphen club forward slash. And uh, it's super, super quick to sign up. Um, you'll receive your welcome email, you'll receive in that welcome email all the April resources and now the May resources as well. So you get to double down on two months worth of goodness and then of course you'll get the invitation into the private Facebook group. So um, this is me letting you know that this is the number one way you can continue to support the work we do to produce a month a weekly show, to produce all the free stuff that we produce like blogs, recipes, et cetera, Um, manage all our social media and do all that kind of stuff to keep chatting in the community, but also to give you guys who do offer, um, who do join us um, in that way and support our work to give you guys a little something extra as low clubbers with the group, the discount um, and all the things that happen inside our Facebook group over the month. So I do hope that you join us. I want to thank so many people who've joined us over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's, Just so heartwarming to know that you understand that small business needs income to survive. That's how this thing works. And uh, while I can accept that I'm not working in the area of hospitality right now, it would absolutely devastate me to have to stop doing this work um, for you guys and produce this incredible show that gives you in one show more uh, than what a single consult with, an expensive practitioner would cost. You know, I really want to make sure that people develop a practical literacy around all of the health topics, all of the sustainability topics, all of the environmental toxin topics that help dramatically decrease the cost of you then going to see doctors, building biologists, etc., because you're literate, you can cut to the chase and spend way more time, cons- way less time consulting people. Uh, and that matters to me a lot because as someone who has often had to pioneer my way through difficult uh, health challenges to then teach how to shortcut things um, like mould illness and, um, You know, I just don't think these things should be so expensive for people. So the club is a way for us to continue to do this work. It's the number one way you can um, help us continue to support you. And for $49 Australian dollars a year, I hope that's a price that's that's breezy for you. Uh, And I'm really, really excited to welcome more and more of you in there over time. Um, Okay, so the last thing I wanted to tell you is that because it's a brand new month, we have a gorgeous new sponsor for the month and uh, it is actually a really um, poignant one because – so many of us are worried and shitty about, sorry about my language today, I've used that word twice, mum's not going to like it, hopefully because the show's on fertility, she's not going to listen to this one, <laughs> that ship has sailed, uh, but um, Newbar is a plastic-free cosmetic brand, um, and... Uh, it's a gorgeous Sydney based small business by naturopath Katie Henna and her partner Kerry Wood. And they've produced uh, this solid form, plastic packaging free hair and body care bars, pH balanced, vegan, palm oil free. It can be very confusing to shop products that do contain palm. Uh, especially if you're not going off the brands that we regularly recommend that are absolutely 100% traceable, um, cruelty free, and environmental destruction free. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're out there, to just see palm oil free makes it much more, much less complicated because you just know no sulfates, no parabens, no petroleum, no artificial fragrance. Gorgeous products. I actually got myself a few late last year. Um, to try because I was interested, um, and they're the squeakiest, cleanest bar bar based products that I've seen so far in terms of what exists in the marketplace. Um, no SLS, no SLES, no silicones. Uh, a really, really gorgeous range. Very gentle on the skin, especially the face products. I think you'll be really impressed. Um, and obviously, they wanted to create new bar to be desirable beyond the green clean credentials which a lot of bar-based products tick that box but then there are actually quite a few fillers that aren't strictly necessary or the most beneficial for looking after your skin so um, created by a naturopath I think that speaks volumes in terms of the uh, the level of care that has gone into thinking about what the um, what the best, extracts can be used to get the best results for people. So combining that green chemistry, botanicals, organic oils, uh, and it's already an award-winning range. They've picked up a couple of awards. Congratulations, ladies. Fantastic. Uh, And I really, really want you guys to try it. It's so wonderful to have them on this month. I know a lot of us are worried about all the single-use stuff and the increase, you know, you can't take your containers to the delis at the moment, you can't, you know, you're having to use single-use gloves, maybe you're having to use -use, single-use other things. You know, I'm I'm noticing I'm wanting to support my hospitality friends and I'm going, well, stuff it. I'm going to have to use plastic containers because that's what it's coming in. And it's the difference between them being able to scrape up for textbooks and a new pair of shoes for their kids after all this is gone and done, then I couldn't give a squat what it's what it's served to me in. I'm gonna support my friend's business. So there are a lot of concessions we're making in single use right now, and rightly so. It's okay. You know, there are these times, it's fine kind of like in the bushfires and delivering water to the firefighters um, for the wildlife and for them. That's not a time that you need to worry about um, plastic bottles. It was a, a life or death situation and this is too largely in many cases. And so really, really important to then um, look at where you can make concessions. And this is one of those places, plastic-free skin and body care, right? Right. So your offer is 15% off the first order for the entire month of May. Your code is Life. It's a single use, <laughs> and it's a good kind of single use, a single use code, 15% off for your first order for the entire month of May. So um, I invite you to go check out the range. Super easy to find online, n-u-e-bar, B-a-r, dot com. newbar.com, and new is spelt n-u-e, newbar.com. Uh, so go check it out. Your code is LOTOXLIFE and you get 15% off your first order. And now that is me waffling on for a huge amount of time, but I wanted to share that personal story. I hope you didn't mind me sharing that Um, and I hope you skimmed over it and you've only just arrived if you did want to cut to the chase and and head straight to Gabriella's interview. But Gabriella is a gifted naturopath. She's currently in uh, in post-grad studies in Harvard. She really is one of the biggest brains I've ever met on uh, fertility and helping her clients achieve their goal of a, a beautiful baby at the end of all their efforts. Um, and I I know that a lot of you are going to resonate with a lot of the things she says. We have her as a guest on our Preconception Ninja course as well, um, which of course, if you become a Low Tox Club member will only be $49. It's crazy uh, because you'll have that 50% off. Um, so, Uh, And we had her interview in Preconception Ninja is actually incredible. It's like discussing all of the stones left unturned and what they are and how people can access tests and um, move forward with their fertility. Uh, So if you want to sort of take that next step, I would do Preconception Ninja after this interview today and then I would look at, you know, working through what we cover in that course then moving on to potentially if things really are tricky for you and it's just not going anywhere, I couldn't think of a better practitioner to recommend than Gabriella Rosa and her team uh, once, uh, once we've worked together for a little bit and you're thinking you still need to do some more. So I'm not going to wait another second and I can't wait to hear what you think of this interview. Enjoy. Hello, Gabriella. How are you? Hello,
1: I'm good. I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Oh, I'm such.
0: Ex- I am so excited to have you on the show. I know fertility is something that, unfortunately, is a growing concern for many, many people who want to have bubbers. And uh, you know, there are so many things that we could talk about. But given this is your absolute passion, this is literally why you exist, why your clinic exists you don't see anybody about anything else, it is to help people have babies. Uh, And uh, in the busyness of being a mum, having two kids of your own, having a business, you're also just sneakily fitting in a Masters of Public Health at Harvard. So, uh, you know, I I think it's inspiring that you are achieving all the things that you're achieving and uh, I know how passionate you are about this topic. So you're perfectly placed to help answer a tonne of questions that our community has on this subject. And before we hook into it, I would love to first ask you, um, how did you become so passionate about fertility in the first place?
1: You know, it's a great question and it's one that I never quite know the answer to. (laughs) I didn't find you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, somehow it did, you know, it was just like this thing about, you know, when I was studying, I, I knew that I, I wanted to special, I, I have this kind of very... Weird, if you like, personality, where I obsess about things in a good way, I think, where you know I kind of like, okay, I want to be really great at something. At the time, I didn't really know what it was, and i and I didn't really have a, a specific direction other than the fact that I used to work for an obstetrician gynecologist. and so you know these conversations that I used to have, even whilst I was studying, was very much around women's health and he delivered a lot of babies so he was primarily an obstetrician and so I always used to see the cute babies and go oh that's lovely and when I studied naturopathy I decided that that was my first degree and I decided that I wanted to specialize in something I didn't quite know what I went to him and I said James I'm thinking of specializing in pediatrics you know it's something that I'm very passionate about seeing all the babies and he goes that's a terrible idea that's just the worst idea I've ever had. I'm like, okay, thanks. Tell me what you really think, you know? Yeah. um, yeah. Well, I actually asked her, I was a little bit shocked because he was was so encouraging about everything normally. And then this one day he's just like, oh, that's a bad idea. I'm like, okay, I'm really interested to hear why you say that. And he goes, well, first your patient's not your patient. It's the parent of your patient and your patient can't speak. So it's a bad idea. I'm like okay I can I can see some of the way he said you know he said to me he said when I was studying medicine I also thought that I wanted to do pediatrics until I actually you know did my my um, my registrar thing in pediatrics and I was like no this is just not for me and I thought okay that's interesting and then I remember one day still going back to the drawing board you know about what I was going to do and, and reconsidering the whole thing I was just going to my, do my clinic hours you had to. Do, a million of those things, you know, yeah. <laughs> in order to graduate. And so I remember going in there and uh, coming up, up the stairs and facing a poster, Natural Fertility Clinic, Clinic Hours. I'm like, okay, fertility, that's it, you know. And so that's how I decided. But one of the things that I know for sure is that with the passing of each year, I have become more and more involved and in, and then as a result passionate about the topic, you know, I've been doing this now for 20 years. So it, uh, it definitely has had its its time to grow on me, so to speak. <laughs> and of course, you know, the more that I did it, the more that I, I started to see results for my patients, the more that I became extremely passionate about the, the self-care and the empowerment aspect, but also the understanding that fertility is not, you know, often we look at a result. We look at an inability to conceive or an inability to carry a pregnancy to term. And that is an outcome. That's a result of a whole lot of, you know, biochemical chain reactions that have happened up until that point. And we often underestimate the importance of that piece when it comes to fertility or reproductive difficulties when people experience them, is the fact that what we see which is the end result of whatever that problem is is actually it, it's led up to that point by a whole lot of other things that happened previously.
0: Mm. And so I'd imagine that part of the uh, excitement, if you like, of working infertility is the detective piece. Is that a particular part that's really attractive to you?
1: Look, that that is actually the reason why I now do what I do and why I'm so very passionate about it because it is exactly it's it's exactly what we do it's you know we as you said we only treat people who basically in our clinic we specialize in difficult complex cases so it's really People who typically have tried everything and nothing has worked. In fact, they often come to me, I don't know how we've become the last resort place, but we have, <laughs> you know, for many people, where they come to us and they say, look, I, I don't know what else to do. And I think that there's, there's a lot to be said for that, um, you know, I've tried everything that people say. Because often they say that because they've run out of ideas of what else could help them and what else is there to look at. Because they, what they knew was it's, called, it's become the ceiling, you know, of where they're at. And so for them, it's like I, I've tried everything, nothing has worked. There's a whole world beyond that ceiling. Absolutely. But Absolutely. they don't, yeah, but they yeah. don't know. and they don't, So, you know, what I often say to couples when they come to me in that situation is that actually what keeps most couples stuck in terms of not being able to take home a healthy baby and you know, have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby is what you don't know you don't know. Mm. And that is a really key distinction between the I've tried everything and nothing has worked and, okay, what else could there be? And so that curiosity and, and that questioning that's required to really be able to not only understand what's going on, but to be able to correlate the entire picture because that often is also where a lot of couples, you know, they're lacking on their journey. You know, when I I assess thousands of cases every year and and when I look at a case, often what I'm looking for, and I've come up with a system now where I just go, okay, what are all of the things that I see? Now, what are all of the things that I need to know are in place and do those things match? Right. Well, often what I'm looking for are the gaps. Where are the gaps? Where are the places of opportunity? Where are the things that essentially, if we leave them untouched, are going to lead to the same result? And you know, a lot of times people go through all sorts of different fertility treatments. They go and fail through IVF multiple times, and the reason is that you know the obstacles that are getting in the way. Those kind of you know the the, the preset. Um I guess the things that the intrinsic um, things that prompt those chain reactions to occur they often not look that because we 're looking at the end result we 're looking at okay, can the egg meet the sperm and can they develop from there and from there do we have an embryo that is able to be fertilized those are you know we often. Um, almost kind of keep ourselves in that box of, you know, working over on, on the end result side as opposed to working on what are all of the things. What are all the books that, in a row that need to be here? Yeah. Exactly. What are all of the things that we need to be, a, be able to correlate and understand? Are they actually working well? And are these things going, are they going to be an issue when it comes to being able to have appropriate hormonal balance? to have the development and the maturation of the egg in the way and in the timing that is required. What about the sperm? What are we looking at there? You see, when it comes to sperm health, often we're looking at count, motility and morphology. You know, do we have enough sperm do they do they basically swim? And, and and often, you know, these days when you get a semen analysis result, if you've gone to a proper andrology lab, you will actually have a distinction between the number of, of sperm that um or the percentage of sperm that are actually moving and the percentage of sperm who are moving progressively. Which is towards something. It sounds like a
0: right? race. What a what we're, a perfect for where like we're at. Some it's of us absolutely. chasing our tails running around in circles and then the rest it's of us actually going, Here's the big picture, let's move forward. Constructively,
1: yeah, but you know what? Like ten years ago, most semen parameters, most semen report, you know, as sperm analysis reports, basically would report just motile sperm, as opposed wow. to the distinction between motile and progressively motile. Just as a tiny little, you know, kind of distinction. And yet, and that's so what not happens. Like is,
0: if that's the issue, right?
1: No, that's right. I mean, there's, there's, and that's just one tiny little part, you know. So basically, motility, and then obviously the shape of the sperm. Are they shaped in a way that they can even, one, swim to penetrate an egg, right, and actually be able to do their job? So, you know, these days we think that that's the holy grail. However, it's not. What about DNA fragmentation, which is the quality of the DNA contained within the head of the sperm? Is that the best quality that it can be? What about, you know, potential silent infections that often are a problem? When it comes to, um, you know, to a couple being able to do what it is, a male being able to actually have the best quality sperm that they can, you know. And then, of course, you know, when when we talked about that, those silent infections and culture, then we're also needing to look at, okay, well, are there antibodies present? And are those antibodies stopping the sperm from swimming? Are they just agglutinating together as opposed to actually moving somewhere, and so on and so forth. So there are immunological aspects that also need to take into consideration when it comes to male fertility. But often these things aren't even talked about.
0: Well, so that is why there are I so many factors. kind of started there and jumped down the rabbit hole of the bazillion things that one could look at in detail on sperm is because historically we've always gone straight to the woman when there's the first inkling of a problem. And for me, it speaks volumes of perhaps where we are at in the stats that that was not the first place you went. And I would love for you to share a little bit of of the overall bird's eye picture of what the major factors are in fertility issues today. Where are they coming from, uh, male, female, um, combination of the two? Yes, yes.
1: yeah. Look, there's, there's there's still to this day, I mean, as I said, you know, having being in, in this industry now for some 20 years plus obviously throughout my studies and everything else, what I have seen is a huge distinction between the fact that in a, now we understand a whole lot more about the fact that female and male fertility are equal when it comes to being able to overcome infertility and recurrent miscarriage and, of course, take home a healthy baby. A lot of people still don't realise that as far as the science is concerned, we really are looking at a 50-50 split between male factor and female factor in being able to prevent miscarriage and decrease miscarriage risk. So if the sperm is not the best quality that it can be, it will impact the ability of a pregnancy being taken to term, even though that pregnancy is going to be taken to term in a female body. Right. However, the DNA fragmentation and all those things that I've talked about, you know, the, the quality of the sperm that's going to be fertilizing that egg will make a huge difference. So we now understand that. You know, this again, talking to this huge misconception that fe- that fertility or infertility is a female thing, or that miscarriage is a female thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, we know very clearly from retrospective analysis and epidemiological research of populations around the globe that we're talking about a third, a third, a third when it comes to all of those issues that I've talked about. So it's a third female factor. Uh, that is, you know, as a cause or reason for the challenges, reproductive challenges that people experience. Then a third is due to male factors, and a third is due to combined factors. And it's so important to be able to actually understand that combined factors typically are really to do with, again, those with two people that are present in the equation. And so in the end of the day, it becomes a 50-50 split no matter what. That's why when it comes to fertility, not only being able to conceive but also keep a pregnancy to term, one of the things that I talk about the most is the fact that fertility is a team sport. You know, you cannot separate male health, female health from to prospective parents' ability to create a healthy baby. And, of course, you know, that entails taking a pregnancy, a healthy pregnancy to term.
0: And if we're talking about donors then for um, same-sex couples or single parents, that would then come down to the quality uh, at the sperm bank as well.
1: Of those gametes, for sure. And, I mean, look, you know, it depends on what kind of um, single sex are we're talking about. You know, there are obviously men who want to have children and then they Want to use their own sperm and so they're basically going to search or look for a, do- a female donor. Um, typically, when it comes to donor egg and the donor egg process around the world, most donors, there is a, a cap, an age cap, uh, where donors are able to donate or not. Um, the, the true reality of it is that even though age is a factor, when we're talking about the ability to conceive and carry a healthy pregnancy to term, of course, we can't skirt around the fact that the major thing that women are going to be told when they go to a fertility specialist is that, and it's not working, right, is that you're too old, your eggs are no good, okay? Like, unfortunately, that is still what my patients hear in those very words. And, and honestly, I find it appalling.
0: agree or disagree with that? Um, stuff. I,
1: compl- I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. And it's not that I disagree that, you know, age is a factor. The, the reality here is this, age is a factor to the degree in which the side effects of aging impact biological processes. So what does that mean? Somebody might be 43 and have amazing reproductive function because their hormones are where they need to be. They've got great antral count. You know, everything is actually on their side in terms of fertility potential and still be told that because of a number right, which is just not right. Or it should actually, but, in
0: that case, be a sperm issue in the 50s.
1: Exactly, year. exactly. Yeah. Or it could be a combination factor, you know, who knows. But the reality of it is that, you know, I have seen and I have had multiple patients over the years where people have, you know, come to me, they've been told, in fact, one patient of mine who she named her baby Gabriella, Aww. so I have to remember her forever. <laughs> uh, it's actually the only baby that I've ever had that kind of had my name, so I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> but this patient in particular was um, what was fascinating about her. She, the very first time she came to me, she was told by three different doctors, three different clinics, that she would never conceive without donor egg. And even that may not actually work. And she might need uh, basically an egg donor or, or an embryo donor. It really, she was not at all. And even with the, with the egg donation, she was told that, you know, that's probably not going to work. You probably need adoption. So she was appalled because she was like, hang on a second, sure, if I need to consider that at some point down the track, I, I may, but I really want to make sure that I leave nothing to chance and no stone unturned. So she came to me, we had the conversation. I said, look, let's do what we do and apply the methodology because we know that when we remove the obstacles to optimum health and optimum fertility, what can happen is, is really quite you know, incredible. So let's do what we need to do. So we started and we did everything that we needed to do. It took us some time. But we, she was able to conceive naturally, and by the way, this, this patient, what's fascinating about her, is that while she was told these things, you might even need you know adoption because your eggs, even donor egg might not work. When we actually assessed her case, a huge percentage of the issue was actually due to her partner's sperm. It was, it was really, you know, under par, below average sperm that really needed a lot of work. And once we did that, and this is one of the things that I often teach, you know, the patients that we treat, is that when an egg might be struggling to do what it is that it normally needs to do, one of the responsibilities of the egg is actually to ensure that the, the DNA of the sperm not only mostly resembles, so it sends out these chemical signals, right, to the, to the sperm, which... DNA most resembles DNA that's going to complement the egg. So that's the first thing that it does. But the second that that a sperm enters the egg, the other job that the egg actually has is of ensuring that it can fix the DNA fragmentation issues of that sperm to the best of its ability so that it is able to fertilise and replicate and, of course, become an embryo. So we women do amazing things even before, you know, the the, the male partner has has had the chance. But, you know, ultimately that has to happen. So if the sperm is not good quality, what ends up happening is that the egg has to work so much harder and utilise so many more of its energy production resources within the mitochondria to be able to make that whole operation work, right? So if an egg is already struggling, so if we have a poor ovarian reserve or if we have low-quality, you know, egg-quality we really need to ensure that the sperm is nothing but the absolute best quality that it can be because that is going to support and enable the couple in that you know, joint common factors issue or factor that we need to address to actually have the best possible result. So you know, really looking at those two uh, sides of the equation is going to be extremely important. Now, when it comes to the ability of delivering that outcome, if the if the if the egg is going to be in that situation where it's already not working quite as well as it could be, and then of course there are other factors that get in the way, then we really are looking at a situation where we keep going around in circles, and most people unfortunately run out of time right there but with this patient that I was ta- telling you about we were able to figure out exactly what are the factors that were actually getting in the way We were able to address them she had her first child which she was delighted about already because it's like okay well and she was already kind of very near 40 at that point so she was absolutely over the moon that not only was she able to conceive she was able to conceive with her own eggs her, her partner's sperm And have a baby then she decided to come back to revisit as many of our patients do and the second time around she was already I think her her first son was about two or going on to three so obviously it was some years later but the same thing happened again you know she was able we were able to make sure that we looked at the process at the time that it was and she was able to conceive and have another healthy pregnancy and another healthy baby, and this is the little girl that was called Natana Gabriella, so cute, um, and Sue's second name, so, you know, I'm still waiting for my first name child. But, um, but the reality of it is that it's this very concept that we're talking about is that age is not necessarily a factor unless we are not dealing with the side effects of ageing, and that's going to be a key process to really get into, you know, into understanding because a lot of times a couple is struggling to conceive, they'll go to their GP, they will literally be told, here's a referral to IVF right, without so much as really digging deeper into what's going on. You know, the, the the truth is, and this is something that happens in every healthcare system around the world, and we know this because we treat patients in every continent other than Antarctica right now. And I, and I have visibility across all of these different health systems. And one of the things that we see and what we know is that there's three things that doctors will check if a couple presents for fertility, you know, challenges of any kind. One is tubal patency. Are the tubes clear? So they need to check for that. It doesn't always happen, by the way, but that is something that, you know, when we're looking at the uh, diagnostic criteria for infertility, those three things must be checked off before a referral to IVF is given. Again, doesn't always happen, but that is meant to happen. So tubal patency. Are the tubes patient? Are they clear? Is a sperm able to swim through them? The second thing that we need to look at is ovulation. Is a woman ovulating? And if she's ovulating, is she ovulating regularly, irregularly, what's going on, right? And then the third thing is sperm. Do we have enough count motility morphology? That's it, right? Now, for about 30% of couples who then are put into the unexplained infertility box, the reason that they're put there is because those three things fail to actually pick up what are the factors that are getting in the way for them and then there may be so many variables within that you know context that often it's missed so you know unexplained infertility becomes the label that's applied because it's the easiest and then we just again keep going around in circles without understanding what are we actually dealing with the problem with that is that then what will happen is that they will be sent to IVF for treatment without actually understanding what are the things that are getting in the way. If we're dealing with biochemical issues, immunological issues, you name it, we still are going to have IVF fail. So we're going through a process that has a 30% success rate that is likely to fail anyway because we're not addressing, again, all of those other factors that we need to take into consideration.
0: Absolutely. And, I mean, it really is such a narrow amount of things that are tested for and skim things before being off for a life and health altering, sometimes for depending on the genetics treatment, yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, so expensive as well. And we yeah. the healthcare systems around the world that don't fund even a, a part of it for the couples, and then you fail around, that can literally mean remortgaging a house or oh,
1: a hundred percent. You
0: know, these get affected in someone's life, and imagine just a couple of extra trips. Digging deeper with a health professional who's a bit better versed in what. A hundred
1: percent, a hundred percent. And what's interesting about that, you know, in um fertility sterility, which is a, a medical journal that's uh that is is very key in in the fertility you know area. Um, they've published a study in 2016, basically saying that for the average couple, uh, to have a close to 80% live birth rate in taking home a baby, right? You need on average eight IVF cycles. Whoa. It's, eight IVF cycles in some countries is at, you know, at a minimum $240,000, <laughs> right, if we're talking the US, where you don't always get insurance coverage. Now, what also happens is, and we see for our patients when they end up actually still needing IVF, what we see is that they don't need Anywhere near that number of cycles.
0: Yeah, so what we're we, not against IVF, it's not at not all many options, right?
1: Not at all. I mean, there will be some couples who will absolutely not conceive without it. You know, we've had patients in the past where they've come to us and they're like, okay, really, we want to do everything we can in order to optimize our fertility and of course to figure out what's getting in the way and through our workup which we are very very detailed in all the things that we do and all the things that we ask for we basically were able to find out immediately you know within the first few months that okay you are actually never going to conceive without IVF. so what we're doing right now is we're preparing you to have the very best treatment process so that you don't need more than one cycle and that's exactly what's happened you know this particular couple that i'm thinking of that's exactly what happens and they've completed their family now they've got two beautiful babies but we knew that you know when when we started that that was the case so you know there's lots of different types of situations that we see but you know there will be situations where couples absolutely will need IVF my problem is when they haven't done any of the things that actually need to be done haven't uncovered any of the obstacles that are getting in the way are sent to IVF and like one of my patients who also you know had been in fact I actually wrote a about this case in my book Infertility Breakthrough because this couple had had 23 failed IVF cycles. Oh, my God. And 23, God. right? And this was a
0: woman's was, body. That's crazy. Uh,
1: unbelievable, unbelievable. So she had had two cycles, had a child, then basically decided to have her second, was trying for 20 cycles, 20 failed cycles, Right. And then came to me, she was like, okay, now we've run out of ideas. Ideally, they would have run out of ideas before, you know, 20 cycles, but that's not what happened. Because that's also what happens sometimes when people can afford treatment, they just keep going because it's like, okay, well, I know that this is what I want more than I want the money and therefore I'll just keep going. But often, you know, that's not the smartest way or the, the best thing to do because we're looking at a situation where, we just kept doing more of the same and getting more of the same result. And so with with them, after going through and understanding all of the things that needed to be understood, she was able to then conceive naturally. What happened with them, it was quite funny. She'd never believed that she would conceive naturally. And so when it came to the time where they were prepared and they were ready to start trying to conceive, and I I said to them, look, give it at least three cycles because – who knows, right? No, no, we've never conceived naturally. We're going to go and do IVF. So they did the IVF cycle and the lining of the endometrium was too thick to be able to transfer the embryo. So we recommended that she didn't and wait one more cycle in order to do that. In the waiting cycle, conceived naturally. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> And then had you know the embryo that was frozen, and then a the couple of years later came back to you know um, do the, the next the next round and and that was also a successful pregnancy and ended up in the healthy baby uh, last year actually yeah. so um, yeah, it's, it's amazing what's possible when I somebody love, does what um, it needs to do
0: and and something I love about the way you work is the outcome is the baby, and you have to be flexible as a health professional as to how that ends up eventuating because Sometimes natural is not going to be best, safest. Sometimes, you know, it really just doesn't on the case. But I'd love to come back a little bit um, uh, into more of an overview. You talk about the amount of testing and workups you do to get to all those gaps that you talk about wanting to find to be able to fill with your clients and and patients and get them um, their bubbers. What are the... Like, if you could pick the things that come back most commonly as being gaps for people on their fertility journeys, um, which I know might be hard for you given you get the absolute, you know, we've tried everything and now we're with you. So you might get a lot of complex workups and a lot less common stuff. But surely there are a few things that might be common in your practice and yet still aren't common in the understanding of gaps to fertility in our lives what are they that you're seeing
1: we get a lot of genetic factors you know a lot of genetic factors from mthfr to you know there's so many different things mthfr becomes like the almost the the headliner right mm-hmm. lots of people talking about it but there are so many other genetic issues that will come up that we need to look at and we need to rule out There's also, you know, immunological infertility is such a huge, huge issue for a lot of couples going through fertility challenges because what immunological infertility, and now it's actually a term, what it does is that it actually precludes a couple from typically being able to, or it may have effects on the singular cells like the egg and the sperm. But typically when we see it, we are having issues with embryos implanting, we're having issues with a woman being able to produce quality eggs, a man being able to produce quality sperm. Um, And typically pregnancies that end even before a positive pregnancy test is actually seen. Sometimes when we're talking about this whole concept of chemical pregnancies, again, we're often dealing with these immunological aspects. You know, and there are many different factors that will fall into this, you know, this category or this criteria. But when it comes to miscarriage, it's the time where we do most of our very in-depth digging but also long time to pregnancy. Like when people have, you know, more than two years average time to pregnancy, then we start looking at, okay, well, hang on a second. It's very unlikely that in two years you have never actually had, unless, of course, there is a blockage and in times where we find things like that. Obviously, the, the reason becomes very clear. You know, we've had patients who come to us, been trying for years and we go and we do an HSG and we know that, okay, two blocks of open tubes because of chlamydia, previous chlamydia you know, uh, infections. So it's like, okay, well, those cases are different to when we go and we do all of that work up and we know that tubes are clear and everything else is working as it should, but then we end up with a situation where we're not having implantation work when we're, when we're not having, you know, a, a positive pregnancy test or we have a very momentary positive pregnancy result. We are, because we also look at, you know, we, we ask our patients to chart their cycles. So we can see from their temperature charts sometimes when there is a trend, a pregnancy trend, and then that doesn't eventuate. And if that happens enough, we know that, okay, there's something here that's not quite right in terms of neurological aspects. So there's lots of different things. And I think that, you know, and this is the interesting thing, even nutritional deficiencies, you know, can cause issues in terms of being able to not only conceive but keep a healthy pregnancy term thyroid issues are so huge you know when it comes to being able to keep a pregnancy to term the the thyroid um, and I'm sure that you've had these types of conversations in your show before Alex but you know what often we see is that you know the ranges for thyroid for TSH are so huge that when it comes to someone trying to get pregnant we know that 2.5 International units per litre is the maximum that we want to see for a woman wanting to, to get pregnant and keep a pregnancy to term. If it's anywhere between that kind of 2.3 to put 2.5, already um. Like okay, we need to treat this Not because
0: to mean, you know four, two,
1: three. Oh but no, I'm not even. I'm not even going there. Yeah. Right. And I mean reverse t three and everything else. So there's and, and not only that, but then we need to look at you know iodine, selenium, and you know all of the nutritional factors, all the panels that are going to be relevant in terms of, of thyroid function. But we're just looking at you know even just singular singular numbers where your doctor should be able to look at a result and go okay, it's two point five or it's two point three. Right. We need to do something about this. And what often happens is that I, I see patients at three point nine, right, when a range is at four, being told, Oh, your thyroid is fine. And I'm like, Oh my God. You know. So so sometimes it's not what what I find and what's interesting is that sometimes there are some very kind of obscure things that we find and that get in the way. But typically for the vast majority of patients, it's just a whole bunch of little things that don't get addressed properly. And what we know, and this is, again, there's there's infertility uh, models You know, that basically help us to understand what's the average time to pregnancy in certain situations. And what we know, and again, this is also based on epidemiological research, is that when it comes to a a patient or a couple at peak fertility has an average of three months' time to pregnancy. So literally it's have sex, get pregnant, have a baby, done, we're no longer having this conversation. But for that one in six, you know, one in six couples who experience infertility or longstanding time to pregnancy, what typically happens is that there are minor factors or obstacles that get in the way. What we know is that when we add just one minor factor, and it can be anything from PCOS to, you know, motility of sperm that's not as good as it can be, to you know, a nutritional deficiency that will impact a biochemical factor or whatever it is. When we have one of those, what ends up happening is that all of a sudden we go from an average of three months' time to pregnancy to an average of two years. A second minor factor gives us an average of seven years and a third gives us an average of 40 years' time to pregnancy. No one has forty years to get pregnant. No, yeah. Get pregnant. No, not at all. But wow. you see, this is why also IVF ends up failing so often. It's because basically instead of addressing the minor factors that are getting in the way, the obstacles that are getting in the way, we just try and bypass those obstacles and go for technology that we think is going to be the smartest way or the best way. And then of course we don't have our ducks in a row. You know, we don't have our bits lined up in a way that we need to to even have to that body. procedure. I absolutely. It. Yeah. To, absolutely, to have that procedure, you know, have its best chance. And so ultimately looking at all of the little things that could be getting in the way and addressing those almost makes more of, of uh, uh, is even more important. They're trying to find all of the obscure things. Sure, the obscure things are going to be vital. And once you ruled that, but for the vast majority of people, they haven't even ruled out the basics, right? And what we're seeing more and more through the research, I mean, Harvard has a, a phenomenal, uh, world-famous department now in terms of lifestyle and environmental medicine research, where we're looking at the fact that environmental factors and lifestyle factors are predominant risk factors, for reproductive health and, of course, infertility, miscarriage and so on and so forth. So when I started doing this work 20 years ago, none of that validation was there. I mean, we had to use common sense, right? If something is meant to kill bugs, could it be that it's going to negatively impact us? in some way or if there are chemicals that are going to be you know problematic overall should we be looking at that at those as something to avoid you know so it, w- it was almost like we we used common sense to figure out what's going to make the body the healthiest that it can be and now what we're seeing is validation for all of the things that we've talked about for years and years and years in terms of you know the the coating in your in your cookware and you know the, the plastics that you don't use in your environment the so things you put on your skin the things you allow into your body, so on and so forth. So, you know, all of those factors, when it comes to fertility, they are crucial.
0: Yeah. And um, in in a society that often just craves the pill that's going to make it all better, um, how often would you say people have some serious resistance and mental work to do around the realisation that actually they need to lower their stress they need to eat organic whole foods. They need to eat, you know, put good things on their body. If they're using personal care, clean with things that are low tox. I mean, these are the basics, and I've seen it time and again in our basic courses that that actually helps solve a number of fertility challenges. And then we send the rest off to you guys, of course. But <laughs> yeah, uh, but. Very, very often they just make such amazing inroads doing those basics. So do you see that in your clinic? And how do you psychologically help them as a team to adopt those basic lifestyle things? Because we just got so busy and everything became so convenient that it can really be a hard process for people. I completely acknowledge that and make it my work to lighten the burden. But I'm very curious to hear how you guys do it too.
1: Yeah, look, you know, it's, it's fascinating because we've now taken over 137,000 people in more than 100 countries through the, the event, the online program that we have that's free. That's the Fertility Challenge, right? And in the Fertility Challenge, we get lots of different types of situations and lots of different types of people, from people where... They are quite well versed, you know, in the idea that lifestyle factors make a difference, that things that they're doing is going to, you know, have an impact to people who have never, ever heard of any of those things whatsoever. So it's a huge distinct demographic of people in all sorts and walks of life, from a variety of countries, either, you know, economically stable countries to economically completely unstable countries, you know, and so we see this huge variation. And huge variation of education level as well. And, you know, the, what I've noticed over the years, we've now been running this program for nine years, what, what, since 2011, what I've noticed is that obviously the more educated someone is, the more they join the dots and the easier as a result of joining those dots, the easier it is for them to actually make the transition and do what it is that they need to do. What I also notice is that the less people are aware of health, well-being, lifestyle in general, the more they use this kind of um, thinking pattern, which is, well, it's sold in the shelf of a supermarket. Surely it's healthy. Surely it's okay, right? It's the same kind of uh, logic that people use, yeah, that people have used for many years in terms of smoking. Well, surely smoking doesn't cause cancer. Well, even though, you know, we had a, a huge amount of time between the 1960s and, and God knows when, when we knew that it caused cancer, but people were still arguing the fact,
0: oh, right? I, and so <laughs> I love that ad that is actually a pregnant woman and there's an ad for a particular cigarette that was the choice of pregnant women everywhere. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they were so smooth and you just go, what I know, right? planet I are mean... we on to think that... that you know, oh gosh, yeah, it's a yeah, whole oh, other
1: of exactly. and, and and this is the whole thing. The whole thing is that, you know, you will have that still for many years to come. There will be a time where we have seen, you know, with smoking, there will be a time that it will be obvious that you know you're non sticking with the coding and, and yeah. whatever and that, you know, the things that you're doing, it's all gonna be obvious. You know, people are gonna look back and they're gonna go, oh, Of course that's true, right? We're not quite there yet. (laughs) We're certainly getting there. But, you know, one of the concepts that I talk about all the time and that, you know, I've coined over the years is the idea of act pregnant now to get pregnant later. Right, because a lot of times people say to me, What are the things that I should do? What are the things that, you know, if I was to have a healthy baby, or if I want to improve my health, improve my fertility, improve whatever it is, decrease my chances of miscarriage, and so on and so forth, what should I do? And I like going back to the application of the basics, right? So if a man and a woman, if we could both get pregnant and deliver babies, I know if that happened to men, we would not probably be talking about a even lower total fertility rate around the world, you know, it has decreased in the last 50 years by half the number, you know, the average number of babies per women. But that also has a lot to do with education, socioeconomic status, you know, all of those factors will make a difference here. But if men could have babies and had to birth babies, I think that the, the total fertility rate would absolutely decline and plummet even more. <laughs> but, but that's a whole other story. But, you know, for the purpose of the example, if we could actually, you know, get the gents to indulge me for a minute here and just figure out and just think about the fact that right now within you, you have 50% of that little baby that you want to create. Let's say that you could birth that baby what are all of the things that you would start doing and or stop doing if you were pregnant right now? Uh, a lot of times, you know, when women, when women become pregnant, the very first thought is, oh, my God, is my baby going to be healthy? What are the things that I need to do? What are the things that I need to stop doing? What are the things in my environment that I, can't, I can no longer touch or have anywhere near me, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, Why well, not start that about out. a year before, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and that's the idea. The idea is starting that right about a year and a year and a half before actually even getting pregnant. Because if we do that, we're going to literally rule out and clear up and address so many of the basics that end up being the majors in you know down the track when it comes to results. Because you know, in that same way in which that biochemical chain reaction that I was talking about takes its place, when it comes to results, we need to usually use quite, you know, um, it's almost like, you know, the, the change of the machinery that you need to actually get a result is going to be much more in your face than when we're first starting to talk about this. You know, like often when people have the infertility wall that I talk about already built up and created, the only way that you're going to get rid of that wall is literally by getting a bulldozer through it and clearing up that space and creating a new path and literally rebuilding the path. Before we get to that, we can just like pick out a few little wings, right? And we can pick out a few kind of like overgrown pieces of shrubbery and whatever else that are getting in the way. But often when we come to a point where it's just like completely overwhelming, we need to use much harsher methods to be able to actually get a result. So if we were to really start with the end in mind, even before we were thinking of having a baby, what are the things that if I was pregnant right now, I could start doing or stop doing that would not only optimise and safeguard my fertility for the future but optimise my chances of having a healthy baby when I'm ready to do so, it it would prevent a lot of
0: problems from having to be dealt with. Basically what you're saying is, is we have to just not be in our early 20s ever. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. But to the part where that hurts, to go out till four in the morning, or, you know all those sorts of things, and to actually just be healthy in the first place. But I do feel like the generation of youth coming up today is definitely more health conscious than
1: the oh, we were more as
0: a population. Much
1: more aware, hmm. much more aware. You know, like but, I think that people are much more into understanding their
0: health. Can I pick up on something you said earlier, though? So we were talking, you you mentioned the socioeconomic um, implica- implication when it came to people being more receptive and having, you know, health on their radar more so they know what to step into that is true of food and that is true of you know low tox items and detoxing your home etc is it true of stress though i feel like stress is non-discriminatory in terms of um who socioeconomically is impacted i know a lot of very stressed rich people i know a lot of very stressed living week to week people um it seems to be the common thread And so I would love to ask you, how big is the impact of stress on fertility and what are some of the practical steps you help your patients work through to reduce stress?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because one of the 11 pillars of fertility in my methodology is mind over matter and it obviously relates to stress as well. And the main thing that I will say about that, and I say this to my patients all the time, stressing about stress is definitely not going to be in your best interest. In saying that, looking at what are the things, because you see, there there are two sides to this equation. One is the fact that we have stress that we perceive as being negative and the same stress that if we perceive as being positive actually doesn't have the same kind of effect on the body. It's so, like it's what so,
0: Libby good. says um, about you know having a beautiful busy day where there's lots of things going on that you absolutely that
1: inspire do. You. you. Get
0: to do this, not you have mm-hmm. to. Do it. And that,
1: yeah, that
0: in perception is really important.
1: And absolutely, and I think that that is one of the greatest pieces of advice ever because ultimately, the way we look at something will shape what we see and when it comes to fertility infertility and and you know recurrent miscarriage and all of those things it's already, it already can definitely be a traumatic experience if you make it so right and I, and that is such an important piece because often people think that they're stressed because of those things happening but really is that really true is the question we need to ask because often what you've said is very true you know people are typically stressed because they are telling themselves a certain story in their mind about what it is that they're doing and what it is that's happening for them as opposed to really looking at okay so let's figure out here if I was to tell myself a different story ie how lucky I am that I get to show up for this busy day as opposed to how unlucky i am to be able to show up for this busy day and if we were to contrast that which what are the other options you know i could be lying in the bed of a hospital uh having just being run over by a car and being fighting for my life so would i perceive if i was in that situation would i perceive being able to show up for my busy day as something to be grateful for or would i perceive yeah. that as being something that is a, a drag right it's all it's a matter of perception it's a matter of contrast. Right. I, one of the things that I do and I, I often teach my patients to do that they tell me really helps them is this idea of understanding that, yes, sure, things could always be better. And often the reason that we get stressed is because we want things to be how we perceive them to be. There's a blueprint in our minds that's not being externalised in our outside environment. So we, we imagine what we would like it to be. We wish that things were a different way to what they are. And we all of a sudden become unhappy and therefore stressed because we're wishing that something is different to what it is. So instead of wishing that things were different to what they are, looking at the fact that, okay, well, things could be better than they are, but they could also be infinitely worse than they are. And so when we look at it from that place and be able to contrast and look at things and and situations, circumstances, life events from different points and different perspectives, right, all of a sudden we're able to understand that, okay, sure, it could be better, but it could also be a whole lot worse. And then that puts things into perspective for us. I think perspective is what we often lose when we get into situations of high stress
0: because we start to... yeah. And it sounds like the, the missing piece is often gratitude and just really centering
1: oh. ourselves around
0: all the good that we see around us and all the opportunities. For that, sure. Yeah.
1: For sure. But also looking at it and, and understanding and realising that, in you know a what? This too shall pass. It's not going to be like, you know, the biggest issue is that we think that we make things pervasive. They affect all of a sudden this little thing that happened today here, you know, I had a little finger cut. All of a sudden everything is bad in my life because I have a finger cut. Mm. Right? So that's the the first thing. We generalise. The brain just deletes the thoughts and generalises. We forget the good things that have happened in the day because we had a finger cut and then all of a sudden that has coloured everything else that has happened. So we make it pervasive. Then we make it permanent right we think in our minds that things are never going to get better and the more that we think that it's never going to get better we think that it's it's doomed it's terrible it's become stressful but then guess what we also start to deep dive into depression because if things are never going to get better guess what what's the point of it all So we start asking ourselves questions that literally just gets us into a spiral. And then thirdly, we take things personally. We think that whatever's happening out there in the world is because of us, right? And it's to affect us, right? And so those are the three P's of just doom and gloom, right? And of course the the number one beautiful recipe for creating the most amazing amount of stress in your life, if that's what you want to do. So if you're wanting to change that picture, It's about looking at it and first, not taking things personally. Nothing that anybody else out there or the situation of the environment, the world, you know, COVID, whatever, right? Those things are not actually here to make your life the worst possible life that you've ever lived. Infertility, miscarriage, you name it, right? Then looking at it and going, okay, well, it's it's not permanent. It's not going to last forever. This too shall pass. We've gone through, you know, like every season, we've gone through winters before. We will go through summers again, you know, and and understanding and having that flexibility of mind and thought to understand that, okay, this is a phase and we need to go through it, right? And And then the second that we do... And we're going
0: to keep talking over each other. I'm going to let you finish what you were going to say. I have a thought for after.
1: No, no, I just, you know, it's that whole idea that, you know, once we actually are able to, it's, it's like surfing, right? You, you surf through the wave. So the second that you surf through the wave, you, you can then get ready to catch the, the next one. But often we want this whole idea that, you know, it has to be in a certain way, the way that I want it now. And if it's not, then the whole universe is, you know, yeah. is falling to pieces.
0: Yeah, and it reminds me of a conversation, um, this is coming up quite a bit lately, uh, with um, Dr. Joan Rosenberg, who's the psychologist who wrote 90 Seconds to the Life You Love. And it's not just a catchy title, it's the, the the physiological response to a negative situation or emotion lasts for about 90 seconds if you let it pass through you and just observe. and uh, And I think you know, imagine if we actually just started to hone that skill uh, and, you know, if what we're talking about today is impacting our fertility and whether or not our ability to start looking at stress and looking at some of the bad things that might happen in our day or life as um, as things that pass through us, move past us, uh, you know, and... Um, and the greater picture is oh my gosh we are heading towards having a baby one day how beautiful is that then then everything starts to work in our favor when it comes to stress and its role in fertility as opposed to as one of the blocks
1: yeah and and look you know there are obviously there are different situations within that as well and and i completely agree with you that it's important to be able to look at it from that perspective And at the same time, there will be people who have been struggling through this for years and years and years and years. And for them, it's almost difficult to kind of imagine that it's going to be different at any other point in time. But the reality is, yeah, the reality is that we need to start looking at little pieces of evidence and start to bring that into a much more local, you know, way of of dealing with that stress because one negative test doesn't mean that your whole life is about to end or that everything is going to be bad from here or on end. Uh, so that pervasiveness that happens with this whole doom and gloom situation needs to kind of be brought back and, and I think that sometimes it's good to ask ourselves the question you know, we ha- when we have a thought. Because it's our thought, we think that it's true. But actually questioning yourself and applying that same level of curiosity to your own thinking, and your own view and model of the world is actually a really good thing in busting stress because what ends up happening is that all of a sudden, it's like, oh my God, this is a terrible day. But is it?
0: Is Mm. it really? Or was it what? A 20 minutes or was it...
1: Exactly. Or was it that somebody just cut you off in the traffic, you know, and, yeah, they were a bit of an ass, but, you know, whatever, right? You know, so it's looking at what are what, are, what is the evidence that I have that things could actually also be different to what I think That they are. And when it comes to dealing with stress, because stress will impact hormonal balance. There is no doubt about it. It is what it is. But like I said before, there is no point at all in worrying about the fact that you might be stressed or that you might be, you know, not in your best possible mood. Rather than focusing your attention there, focusing on what it is that you can do differently. You know, what it is that you can do to experience whatever next situation that you're faced with and that you're dealing with in this present moment in the best possible way you can. One of the things that I love to do is whenever I'm kind of in a, in a bit of a mood, I ask myself, okay, what is great about this moment right now? Not a second from now, not a second from, you know, before now, like right now, what what can I find to be grateful for, to be happy about, to be whatever it is that I want to be instead, Right. And often my branding starts at, first of all, the first kind of response is like, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, nothing's good. I'm glad you said that.
0: People will be like, wow, she's really (laughs) uh, highly evolved.
1: (laughs) Reality check.
0: Just like the rest.
1: I am absolutely (laughs) human. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, and, and so I, I kind of go, not, nothing's good in this moment, like nothing. And I go, come on, Gabriella, get over yourself and let's start to find something. What could, so then I changed the question. What could I be happy, excited, relaxed, whatever about in this moment right now and then because i'm going to let myself off the hook and that's the key is not letting yourself off the hook because if you stop asking the question when you still haven't got an answer guess what the brain gets lazy and next time it's just going to do the same thing it's just going to go not nothing and then you, you won't pursue it so it's just gonna okay, whatever so that feedback loop gets reinforced as well so it's like okay what could i be excited happy joyful whatever about right now and I don't stop asking myself the question until I find at least something. And then from there I go, okay, well, what is great about that? What makes that even, you know, greater? And then there is a roll-on effect that happens, you know. So it, it, little strategies like that can such, make such a huge difference in a person's day and therefore in a person's life. So it's about picking something and running with it and applying it and not letting yourself off the hook. That's the key. I
0: love it. So good. And given, um, I definitely want to ask you this before we finish up, given you teach acting pregnant before you are pregnant, which I think is just the best way to tackle the whole preconception um, two hard baskets. like, well, what, if you were pregnant now, what would you be doing? Start now. <laughs> um, what are your absolute top non-negotiables for people?
1: Look, I think that, you know, it depends on what phase they're in in the process, right? So if they're just starting, obviously making sure that they're removing the, you know, like all the things that you teach in your low-tox courses and, you know, all of that kind of thing, which is similar to what we've been teaching for a long time as well in the fertility challenge, which is remove the chemicals, the exposures that you actually can. Out of your environment, you know. I mean, these days, <laughs> you and I both will laugh about this because you know you, you, we teach this all the time. But you know, I go to places and I see those little scent things plugged into a PowerPoint, and I'm literally just going like, okay, like whoever owns this place, come here. Let me let me give you a little lesson. <laughs> I did this at my personal training studio the other day. I'm like, okay, let's have a conversation right now. Um, You know, and this is owned by a young couple who basically don't yet have children, probably aren't going to be thinking about having children for another 10 years. And imagine what 10 years of that kind of exposure is going to do to endocrine function. Right. So it's, it's a huge problem. But most people, again, it doesn't, become, it doesn't become something that's on their radar until they're ready to do the thing. So, you know, any, any point within that preconception period, I know that for me, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome by a gynecologist literally over the phone who got my results back. And the conversation was in exactly these words and it was pretty much the same length. You have polycystic ovarian disease and you're probably never going to have children. So that's what's happening here. That's why you don't have a period. Okay. Is there anything else that I should do? Is there anything? Nope. That's it. Okay.
0: I thank pretty you. Pretty much the same. But I got added. Added to that was she did have time to say, and you've probably got early onset menopause. And this yeah. Was 28. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you know, so at 18, that's kind of how I heard about it, and I was like. Okay, but at the time, I wasn't really very, like I wasn't even near close to wanting to do something about even trying to have children at that point. So I heard it, I went, oh, so that means that I might ne- never have children. Okay, interesting. Um, percolated it for a little moment and just went, okay, well, if I can't have children, then I can't have children. It is what it is and I'm just going to go about my business. However, what it did do is start me on the path of looking at and being aware of, okay, if this thing is not good for my optimum health, my fertility, then I'd probably best not to do that. So it turned out that like, you know, I've never really drunk or done drugs or, you know, basically had a massively unhealthy lifestyle because I was always quite, you know, aware of the fact that I needed to be somewhat careful if I ever wanted to have the option to have children down the track. Now, what was interesting about that as well is that when I met my partner, we were so not ready to have children. So we still waited like eight years before we even started that conversation, but six months within the relationship, I said to him, darling, can I just ask you, because, you know, this is my job and all, can I just have you go and do a semen analysis just so that we kind of know <laughs> where we're at? <laughs> and, uh, and he was, it was amazing. He was just like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go do it. Literally the next week I had a cerebral analysis report on my desk. I was like looking at it going, oh, it's worse than I thought. (laughs) 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 We have a double factor here. He had like zero motility, like, you know, morphology was terrible. It was just, it was horrendous. And he was a relatively healthy guy too, fit, healthy, you know, So again, environmental factors, and we started to be careful, you know, we started to kind of just be aware of these things way before. So about two years before we thought, okay, we really want to do this. We then started to be more proactive. Six months before we were like, okay, we're on, you know, and then one day we just basically went, okay, let's, let's attempt this cycle. I knew when I was ovulating, I've always charted my cycle. So I knew when I was ovulating, so I said to him, okay, this is it, calm down now. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and we conceived literally first try, right, as a result, yeah, as a result of being aware, knowing, having put in, in place all of that work prior to doing the, you know, all of that. Um, and then, of course, second time around was, you know, with PCOS, getting your periods back is like a whole other kind of level of disaster and, and that took two years for me to be able to get my period back, let alone to start trying but wait, again, because I was aware and because I knew, I didn't even count, like anybody else ordinarily from the time that they would want to be pregnant to the time that they actually got pregnant would have been like an 18 month, you know, kind of infertile period because it's like I'm trying every month. But I knew, even if like I knew that there was no chance I was going, my ovulation, there was no ovulation. It was just like there was no chance that I would get pregnant at all. Within that kind of two-year period, so I didn't even bother. And then when my parents actually start, like I was able to get them started again. Then I was like, okay, now we're in for a possible chance. And then we started trying, and then that happened second time around. But again, with you know, if if I didn't know, if I didn't know better, I would have gone. I I was infertile for two years.
0: Well, yeah, and this is the fine, right? Because it was exactly the same for me. If I had not had my naturopath guiding me, A, getting my period back in the first place and then B, a couple of years later when I was ready, um, having a very successful pregnancy. We did a lot of work to, to optimise my body and um, I, I don't want anyone out there thinking it was like dead easy, first try class oh, my gosh, I'm just one of those people. No, I worked hard on that goal. And, um, and for the people who are genuinely challenged by this, there is hope. If you put in the hard work and find the right health professionals. So I definitely want the overarching vibe to be, yes, it's possible. How much do you want it as well? You exactly.
1: Know? And and you know, that point that you have just made is one that I live, you know, I have this thing with my patients that I talk about being steadfast. Because when it comes to overcoming infertility and recurrent miscarriage when other treatments have failed, that is the number one resource in a resource that you need to bring to the table. Because ultimately, it is no walk in the park, right? You actually have to make a lot of changes, a lot of adjustments, a lot of improvements, and alongside understanding and finding out what are the factors that are getting in the way. However, 100% it is possible. And in fact, you know, when I started doing this, Alex, 20 years ago, if we were not in a situation that we have today, which, you know, 20 years ago a couple wanted to put in as much effort, time, money and energy into having a baby. They, it would still be a situation where it's like, oh, if you're lucky, that might happen, right? In two, 2020, in this day and age, if a couple wants to put in enough time, energy, money, focus and, and attention to making that goal, a dream, you know, come true... It absolutely can happen. You might need to be flexible about the how. You might need to be flexible about how you do it, what you do it, where you do it. Like we've had a patient, a couple this this week, she's 58, he's 63. They were absolutely adamant that, you know, they have children and grandchildren. They were adamant. They they came together. They absolutely wanted to have a baby together. And they have conceived and had a, a positive pregnancy test, you know, like literally. Last week, so again donor egg, his sperm, but donor egg, and um, and so it is possible. The reality of it is, how much are you actually willing to do to get that outcome? You know, a few years back, when I had my first son, one of my patients came to me. She was like, I absolutely want to have a baby, no matter what. She was fifty-six. And similar story where, you know, we basically did everything that we needed to do for her and she was able to conceive and we actually ended up, ended up having our babies three months apart, you know. So, um, so you know, the, the reality is that in this day and age, it's absolutely possible if people absolutely are like, you know, I'm going to do this. If you have the right guidance and the right attitude and the right, you know, approach to it, absolutely it is. But it's it's also the fact that sometimes people have a very... Um, specific thing or way in which they have in mind. You know, sometimes people come to me, our program, we've done a retrospective analysis on our patient cases and we've seen that, you know, the patients who come into the Natural Fertility Breakthrough Program, there's a 78.15% success rate in taking home a healthy baby in a live birth. The 20%, you know, the approximate 20% of the people who don't is because they have a very specific line. They're like, okay, I will do everything I can in order to conceive naturally. If I can't conceive naturally, then I won't do anything else. That's where I draw my line. Some people basically say, okay, well, I will still do IVF, but that's kind of where, you know, the journey ends for me if I absolutely had to. Other people are like, no, I want a baby more than I want a way of having a baby. I will do whatever it is that I need to do. And they will go and they will do whatever it is that they need to do. You know, we sometimes get patients who come to us, they've had multiple failed donor egg cycles previously, and they want to know, okay, why is this not happening? Why is it not sticking? So, you know, it depends. Each situation is individual, but the reality is that, yes, if somebody wants it enough, it's absolutely possible. We're in the, in the day and age where it absolutely is possible if people want it enough.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question, which is what are you most excited about on the horizon in fertility? Is it new stuff or is it a, a bigger consciousness rising about how important the basics are? Where Where's your excitement at?
1: Look, I, I'm really excited about, you know, I'm actually very excited about policy change in this area. And policy change comes from, you know, obviously more research, but also really being able to categorise that research and being able to understand what is the impact across the board if we do certain things that are going to optimise our chances. There's a whole lot more research coming out, as I said, in environmental factors, lifestyle factors. And that's really exciting, not from the perspective that, oh, my God, finally we know that it works, but actually because we can put those things together in a way that then insights and governs and almost kind of um, prompts, you know, policy change. My, like, if I look at, you know, my next 20 to 40 years, what I want to see happen is actually that these kind of lifestyle strategies and environmental factors that we talk about today be the absolute norm when somebody goes to a GP and are told, hey, you, you know, need to put these things in place, go and do that, go do it for a period of time and then come back to me if we need to do something more. And then even then being able to escalate that prior to IVF becoming the next resort. I mean, in my opinion, IVF is an amazing technology. It is brilliant in so many ways and it shouldn't be a first resort for many couples. You know, I think that there has to be still a whole lot more education and you know, education that's systematized in the way that we can actually utilize it because there's a huge the biggest problem in terms of research is the time from a, an article being published to the time in which it becomes standard policy. There's between typically a 12 to 17 year time lag between something is published in the scientific literature and it actually becoming a uh, recommendation for a patient. So really, if I can make it, it, it's huge. It's huge. That's almost two decades. That's why when we look at you know what is now being published, we know that you know one day. Yes, it's going to be like, oh, of course, everybody knew that. You know, it's the whole new cigarette thing. But the reality is, because of that publishing, that publishing lag between publishing and actually, you know, policy and intervention and patient recommendation which is the translational medicine side of things. You know, they call it bench to bedside. Um, It's basically, it takes all that long. I mean, if we say 17 years, I mean, if you have a baby today, you know, in 17 years, this is going to become something that's important. Sure, the next generation will be able to utilise it. But what I want to see is actually a huge shortening of that lag right, of publishing to patient uh, therapy. And there's ways of doing that and I think that, you know, there will be a lot more um, research focus on this in the future and that's what I'm really excited about right now.
0: Oh, absolutely, as am I. Um, Gabriella. thank you so much. So much talked about. I feel like we could have gone for another hour, (laughs) Um, but I really appreciate your time and generosity in sharing not just um, some of the, um, the technical aspects of the road to having a successful um, live birth as, um, as is t- correctly termed, but also um, just sharing those case studies because people see themselves in those case studies and hopefully today that has helped some people see that perhaps there are a few things that they might want to look into more deeply and I couldn't recommend a better resource. If you've done all of our basics, then Gabriella should be your next stop because her team is truly incredible. So thank you, Gabriella. My thank time.
1: you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body, and mind topics, as well as kids, and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you inspire you to take community action. Uh, And uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, dot com forward slash low life and come join the private low life club in there over time more and more cool stuff is about to be added and i can't wait to see where that community takes us it's a place where we can continue the conversations chat about the weekly show you're going to get bonus uh q a and all sorts of things over time i explain everything over on patreon so i encourage you to check that out and in the meantime i'll see you next week Yesterday.